Hi friends, this is my um, probably fourth attempt to do my second podcast. So, the labour of love is fading quickly. It's fading so, so quickly. Um, this episode is going to be all about the sequel to Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies, um, written by Android Webber. Um, now, I'll speak a bit more about the in defence of idea um, in the second part um, of this piece. Uh, <laughs> piece. Um, but the indefensive idea is kind of where the podcast spurred from. Um, initially, it was going to be about movie musicals, but a whole mess of podcast melodrama has ensued this weekend. And 47 minutes of good conversation with my good friends, Nikki, Alex and Jill, has resulted in having nothing. Um, so anyway, with all that happiness, let's do some theme tune. <laughs> around so as I said the uh, first kind of notion I had to do a podcast was based around this idea of being in defense of something which takes something that is kind of literary i.e like a film a tv show a book uh, a musical any piece of theater that got a really 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 bad rap uh, initially in the, in the in the kind of initial stages of its existence and maybe hampered its development further maybe it was released and you know it, it could be anything but it basically got a bad rap to the point where it was impossible to see it for anything more than a disaster. I think the Cats movie, which we'll talk about another day, and I was actually going to talk about on Friday, and the podcast that failed me. Um, but no, so the, the idea is that you take this piece of work and you discuss it. But uh, through discussions with Joanna, um, we, we talked about this idea of getting litty, which I then took on, um, and the end defence of became almost like a little bracket of that. Um, so yeah, the idea is that I'm going to talk a little bit today about... Um, the sequel to the Phantom of the Opera, which is Love Never Dies, because I don't know if you know this, but when Phantom, um, excuse me, Love Never Dies first opened, it didn't do so well, and in the development, it was kind of plagued and hampered by this real, um, I'm gonna say, I always say snark. It was kind of snarky, but it was also people just didn't like the idea, um, because here's the thing: when there's a Roland Bart essay, which any anybody who is interested in English and literature and reading will know um, about Death of the Author where when an author it means a lot of different things but the way I always think about it is when you give a work out into the world the author is effectively just in name only like the author's done his or her work um, and they are they, they give it to the world and because of this um, people then take ownership of it I mean you think of Harry Potter you think of friends as well, um, these things that have been massive and have ended and in their end and have people crying out for more. Um, but the truth is that people would never be able to appreciate the work as much as they would if it was how it continued in their own head. I'm trying to think of an example. There was one recently. Um, it's all about expectation you know your, your own expectation will create how you appreciate something so for, for instance i think i mentioned it in the last podcast i did a book called chop man and i was disappointed by the ending and not because the ending was bad but because i had as a reader taken ownership of that and thought this would be great if it ended this way which isn't necessarily how all people read i understand that but it's the same basic idea um as to why there was such a kind of massive um backlash to um 
Love Never Dies. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first of all, before we talk about Love Never Dies, I have to talk about Phantom of the Opera because Phantom of the Opera is a juggernaut of entertainment and I hate myself for even saying that. And I can say things like, because Joe's down the stairs watching the football. Um, so Phantom of the Opera opened in 1986 in London. Um, it'd been in development for years. And actually, Android Webber, and I think... Cameron Mackintosh developed this initial idea um, as an adaptation of Phantom by another writer whose concept for it was closer to Rocky Horror than it was to what it ended up being. It was more kind of based in humour. Um, <clears throat> so he tried to develop it and then found that the, 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 the person he was developing it with wasn't necessarily taking any kind of... Um, wasn't taking his suggestions on board, let's say that much, and so took it upon himself to then develop it into what it became. And I think he picked up the book, he said, in New York at maybe a, a book stand somewhere and then read it and just realised the potential. Um, and it came along at a time, um, he had a little bit of the British invasion in relation to the Beatles. Well, people don't often um, appreciate there was a British invasion um, of musical theatre uh, in New York. The 80s were full of these mega musicals that came from London and just dominated like they absolutely took over think about Les Mis Phantom is an example of that Cats is an example of that um Evita was in the 70s but it was really the first kind of one of the first to kind of go and to to take over in such a, a grandiose way so Phantom of the Opera is the last kind of man standing if you will uh, in that kind of crowded field of British musicals and then it opened on Broadway um and in the 80s and it's still open now and is in fact the longest running broadway show ever um and that's not to say anything about the west end production which is also still running preceded only by um les mis les mis has been running now for 35 years i think um where phantom's 34 so it's just a little bit behind fact phantom uh, les mis might be 31 30 no not 31 this is why i don't do maths 36? I don't know. It's been running for a while. Definitely over 30 years. Phantom's definitely 34 because it opened in 86. Anyway, so the idea of a sequel to Phantom of the Opera came about because of this massive success. So the figures that I found are startling. Um, worldwide, in fact, we'll start at Broadway first. I think on Broadway it's grossed, in North America anyway, it's grossed $845 million um, since it opened. And worldwide, um, the production in, in its various guises has has um, brought in something like $5.6 billion from a musical. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's the trick. If you can write a musical that does well, you never work again. <laughs> um, so it, sequels are kind of, to musicals, are kind of a rare beast. They don't very often happen because, especially uh, to a movie it would make sense, but to a show you are opening on the anticipation that either it will stand alone as its own work or everyone will have seen the the um the, the predecessor. Which if you think of it in the case of Phantom of the Opera, most people who are serious about theatre and many who aren't will have seen Phantom of the Opera. So I guess in that sense a sequel starts to make sense, uh, really. Um and the idea was first spoken about in kind of nineteen ninety and I believe the initial idea was that the um the Phantom would be living in this kind of penthouse in Manhattan. Um and then as it developed over time, uh he moved it into um he, he moved it to this kind of Coney Island freak show. Um and it it would kind of develop as it went. And Android Weber being the kind of tabloid um fodder that he is, um 
you know, he got an awful lot of stick and over time for various reasons, um, mostly for his personal life, but obviously this kind of thing fed into that too. And I think the really useful group, Press Room, have a lot to do with um, his presence in the British tabloids as well. They have have a lot to say in that, um, or a lot of say, sorry, in that as well. So it was always spoken about in this idea of a kind of mainstream um, musical sequel hasn't always been or hasn't really ever been done to any level of success and spoiler alert for how Love Never Dies goes it hasn't really worked in this case either um so it rumbled on and rumbled on and it was always spoken about and then in the mid noughties it started to pick up pace again um and he drafted the sequel now there is a sequel to Phantom of the Opera but it's more a sequel to the musical um and it by a gentleman whose name I have absolutely forgotten um and Angela Weber started to develop it with him initially um and then he was kind of bumped and Angela Weber then took what he had and started to work with Ben Elton who you may know from his work in British comedy um he's also a novelist um and he also wrote the I think he wrote the book for We Will Rock You which is the jukebox musical of Queen songs um so my ethos of this podcast is to always be a um a positive presence um, but what I find is with Ben Elton, I, I, all I can really say is he, he should stick to comedy. Um, that sounds so bad, doesn't it? We Were Rocky is a really fun show, but it is very out there, and that's very much his lane. Um, Love Never Dies is, is not that. Love Never Dies is kind of, we'll, we'll get to it later, but it's kind of maudlin and kind of heavy, and it's not really the kind of the thing that Ben Elton, you would necessarily associate him with. Let's just let's just say that much um so yeah the mid noughties came and, and um ben elton helped angela Weber develop the show um, and all these extra characters were being created over time um and what had happened there was that the um a lot of the characters that were created ben elton kind of said well look it has to kind of relate to the original so he said ditch a lot of these characters and bring in the characters that people know from Phantom of the Opera and what that will do is it will link the two um which arguably you know does it work does it then work as well as a standalone piece potentially not um I was very lucky to see both shows in one day so it was like one giant show um so I don't know does it work as a standalone it's probably a question for the end of the podcast um so yeah it was I'll, I'll answer that question, don't you worry. So at the end, um, <clears throat> by the time it was kind of in development, it already had all this negative press and the the Phantom of the Opera fans, that's fans of the PH, are very passionate people. Um, and I think they'd kind of made their mind up about any sequel to the show because they were so passionate. And as I said earlier, it's that kind of death of the author thing. They take passionate ownership and they don't want to see the thing that they love um, kind of reduced to a, a cash grab, you know. Uh, or or to be ruined or tainted in any way um so in that sense the musical was kind of doomed because it had that level of anticipation and just a lot of negativity around it before anyone had heard any of it um but then the show eventually opened in march 2010 at the adelphi theater on the strand in london to i'm gonna say moderate to negative acclaim so yeah people weren't happy necessarily
the show opened in March 2010, as I said, at the Adelphi Theatre on the Strand in London. Um, now, first of all, one of the things, actually, because this is, like I said, this is about my fourth attempt trying to do a podcast this weekend, the less said, the better. Um, Angela Weber owned the Adelphi Theatre uh, in London, I believe. Yeah, I think he does. And he, it's, I love the Adelphi. I think it's the, it's the theatre I've seen, I think I've seen four shows, in, no, three shows in there at least. No, four. Is it? Th- I don't know. Anyway, I've seen Love Never Dies, um, Love Never Dies, Sweeney Todd, Kinky Boots, and that might be it actually. So it's, it's just the three. If I'd seen Waitress, it would have been four. That's it. So I've seen three shows at the Adelphi, and the thing I love about the Adelphi is that it has this kind of almost like a plain stone wall. It has a little viewing window, and the certainly with Love Never Dies, it had the kind of vertical signage. And what Angela Weber did was he put the scary face that was typical of the, the marketing for Love Never Dies in the little viewing window and painted the front of it black. I mean, he didn't do it personally, obviously, but he had it painted black. And I think the London Borough Council had something to say about that um, because they were like, well, whether you own or not is a listed building <laughs> and you have a responsibility to history. And so they were mad, um, which is funny anyway. Uh, so and right from every single angle, that show must have been absolute torture. I don't have much sympathy because, again, it could look at it really cynically as like a cash grab, which I think it was, but whatever. Um, so then, obviously, the reviews come out after it's been in previews for a few weeks, um, and Leo Benedictus from The Guardian has very handily, that's not, probably not a word, given us this kind of review of the reviews, and Leo's um, opening caveat is, you weren't expecting a masterpiece, were you? Which... I mean, I hoped for one. I sure did hope for one. But you know what? I'm going to say it out, like, potential spoiler. What these reviews say is it's kind of really... I mean, obviously, they're, they're paid to have these opinions, but they are opinions. And opinions are not fact. Um, the You know, there's always positive in something. And certainly for Phantom of the... Um, for, sorry, for Love Never Dies there is a lot of positive. So please bear with me while I read a slew of negative and probably give some negative opinions of my own. Um, but there is positive to be had here. So please, you know, continue to listen. So first of all, um, there's an out-and-out rave um, in the reviews from the Independent's Paul Taylor. I'm not sure if Paul Taylor still works for the Independent. But Paul Taylor deploys all five stars to herald the technical excellence of Love Never Dies its sumptuous production, the splendour of the orchestra and the yearning melodies. Um, Charles Spencer of The Telegraph joins him in acclaiming Lloyd Webber's finest show since the original, which he thinks will linger potently in the memory when frothier shows have been long forgotten. Which is interesting, really, because, you know, in the repeated attempts to make this podcast, I find I agree with Charles Spencer, really. Um, As much as it had its problems, it was, if nothing else... And there were other things, but if nothing else, you would remember it because there is a lot to um a lot to remember. Um and then the critical opinion is kind of moderate from then on. Although Leo Benedict says moderate, I don't think it's moderate. So we will continue um with Michael Billington who said the problem lies within the book, um, pointing to Lloyd Webber's decision to transpose the Phantom character to Coney Island. Um now to the uninitiated in theatre, the book refers to, like, the script, um, sometimes known as the libretto, um, which encompasses really the lyrics and the, the dialogue and stuff as well. Just basically everything that isn't, like, a tune is the, the book. I would I could be wrong there. Please, someone correct me if I am. Um, so Michael Billington, yes, said the problem lies within the book, uh, pointing to Lloyd Webber's decision to transpose the 
phantom character to Coney Island 10 years after the original where he somehow, despite being deformed, mad, violent and, prob- violent and probably dead, established a thriving theatrical business. Theatrical business. Romantic obsession may be common to both shows, Billington observes, but where one may feel sympathy for a doomed outsider, it is hard to feel much for an omnipotent impresario. Interesting. Um, because for me that throws up a question about the original Phantom of the Opera where we have to ask ourselves, was the Phantom really a sympathetic character? I don't know that he was until like the last kind of 20 minutes of the show, uh, which I guess is fine, but the I think people confuse sympathy with, or, or the sympathy that um, Christine shows him. Heavy spoiler alert here, by the way, so if you don't know Phantom or you don't want to know, you don't want to know anything about Love Never Dies, you probably turn it off now or skip to the end. Um, but in the Phantom of the Opera, he's shown kindness when she first of all rips his mask off which wasn't cool anyway um and then gives him it back so he can hide himself and i think that's when he starts to be in a sea change but it takes until right at the end for him to attempt murder um and then actually be like oh well did you know what i'm, I'm gonna let you go because she kisses him which is a it's a complicated message anyway to, to sell if, if you want to really ruin it i she, she showed me affection and therefore i could be kind to her boyfriend like come on phantom Come on, son. Um, when in Love Never Dies, I see Billington's point. It's he is an omnipotent empresario, like he's pulling all the strings, but he was always pulling the strings. Like that's never changed. That's always been the case. Um, in the Times, though, Benedict Nightingale is prepared to go further by saying it is a dismally implausible plot. The Phantom is not the Phantom we knew. The poisoned gargoyle who burns in hell has clearly taken an anger management course in New York and the ending is sentimental in the way that pleases Broadway where the show is headed. Now, um, two interesting points to pick up on there. Um, he says the plot's implausible. It's not implausible. It's a bit melodramatic. Um, the Phantom is not the Phantom in you. That's true. The Poison Gargoyle Who Burns in Hell is a lyric from the original show. Um, and he says that pleases Broadway where the show is headed. Now, I'd like to take a break in the middle of the reviews here to say that the initial idea for the show among other things, is that there would be um, simultaneous openings in London, Shanghai and New York. And as of today, which is March the 1st, 2020, almost 10 years after the show opened, um, it has only ever opened in... Um, had uh, This production has only ever opened in London. Um, I don't know if the revised one has opened in Shanghai, but it certainly has opened on Broadway. And so this is the only time this version of this show has been seen in anywhere in, in London um, so yeah um, it's not a sentimental end, sentimental ending it's a really it's a really moist ending <laughs> by which I mean like ugh, just claggy and get it off mate it's not nice um, and he said yet even among the correspondents of that city the omens are not good the Phantom might as well have a kick me sign pasted to his backside ah now interesting this is Ben Brantley from the New York Times Um who continued, this poor sap of a show feels as eager to be walloped as a carnival clown in a car- no, as a clown in a carnival dunking booth. Now, this will be the review that would have sent shivers down Absolutely Weber's spine because as someone who has had hits on both sides of the Atlantic, he will absolutely recognise the value of the New York Times review because it was the very same one that made him shit himself when um, Sunset Boulevard came out and the same reason why I fired Patty Lapone because he said she wasn't I can't remember what they said about her, but it wasn't very nice. And he went, well, she's the problem with the show, even though the show had several problems before it even got to the cast. Similar to this, actually. Um. So, yeah, he will have... This will have put the willies up him and he will have been like, okay, well, I need to do something. 
Um, and the kind of last couple of reviews are from the male's Quentin Letts. Less said, the better. Um, do you know I'm even going to read it? I don't like him. That's terrible. I don't know him, but he said some shit in the past, which isn't cool. Um, even still, I'm going to go to Bill Hagerty, the Sun's theatre critic. It's funny that the Sun has a theatre critic, eh? Um, who admired the show's lush melodies along with its sets and special effects that cannot be faulted. But fantastic, he wonders. Afraid not. So, you know, reviews weren't great. Um, so the reviews weren't great. The reaction from the audience of diehard fans, again with a PH, was also not great. Um, and even before the show had done anything, they had kind of adopted this moniker of paint never dries to say it was like so kind of arduous and long and ugh, and claggy, I guess, would be the word that they were like, mm, we don't love this. And again, it's it's to do with that sense of ownership. People, people love it and people want to stick with it. And, you know, they just, you know, they're precious about it. And I understand it. It's like I always say I want a friend revival. I do. I want one so bad. But whatever it was, it would never live up to expectation. And even when the Gavin and Stacey revival came out at Christmas in 2019 there, it still was... I've still not seen it a second time because I enjoyed it for the nostalgia factor on Christmas Day. But I don't know if I would enjoy it as much as I did on Christmas Day because it's not going to be the show that we knew because time has passed. And I think that's the problem. I think that we theatre's quite good because it lives in a moment so you're not going to have to go home and revise all the problems you can go and view it again if you wanted but it lives in that in the moment in which you experience it and that's why there's a lot of debate around edit um, recording the show um because it then is no longer this kind of precious fleeting thing it is it can be viewed all the time by everyone all the time um and i guess that's maybe why there's such an enhanced scrutiny on theatre now um as well like if you think so i think i said in the last Actually, I didn't. I said it at various points over recording this weekend, but you've never heard me say it. Um, Wicked is one of my favourite shows in the whole wide world. But Wicked, again, garners a level of snack, uh, snark that or certain castings do um, because people have the ability and the facility to go and to view those and to go and compare people and compare performances. And it's a different beast now. And why you would want to open a sequel in that is like, come on, man. Anyway... So that was the reviews and the audience response. Um, but I will now push on. And actually, like I say, saw the show with Kim. Hey, Kim, if you're listening. Um, we saw Phantom and Love Never Dies in the same day. Um, I, had, I hadn't seen Phantom before this point. Kim had seen it a couple of times. Um, and we saw Love Never Dies that evening. Uh, and it was the 27th of uh, April, 2010. Um, so again, almost 10 years ago. Um, but now that I've kind of done a little bit of bashing... There'll be a little bit of action to come. And there's also going to be a spoiler warning. I'm actually going to try and defend the show now. So that'll be interesting. Um, Please enjoy the next part. And this little interlude. This little jazzy interlude that I seem to have here. Thank you for listening so far. And I hope you enjoyed that second interlude there. It was really cute, wasn't it? <laughs> um, so... I adjust my position um, the third and final content part of this podcast will be me doing what it says in the tin and trying to defend the musical which for me it has to take a little bit of the rough with the smooth because for me the, I'm not going to say it I'm not going to say it I'll say it at the end I'll say it at the end I'll say it at the end wait there I will say it at the end for me the show um, 
it was a game of two halves. So I'm also going to put a spoiler warning in here and just say that um, you will definitely get the show spoiled for you because there's no way to avoid it um, without because I have to speak about the show and that comes with everything. Um, but I will say I did enjoy the show. I left it with a tear in my eye despite the end being really maudlin and really just saccharine and gross. But I left with a tear in my eye. And I think the tear in my eye was a combination of the performances and the music. But I will get to the music. Um, the show is basically, it's set 10 years after the original. And the Phantom has moved to New York after fleeing from the Bayon mob. Um, and in that time he has developed this theatre company weirdly. And tempts back Christine to sing um, at the opening of the theatre. Um, Christine is married very unhappily to Raoul. Um, who's gone from kind of dull fop drip to alcoholic gambler. That seems like a Ben Elton choice. That's, I'm just kidding, that's terrible. I don't know these people at all. How can I assume something like that? I did. Um, so she's now with Raoul. And Raoul is an alcoholic gambler and he's not very kind to her. He, they, She has to work because he spends all their money. Um, and the show goes on and on and on and eventually she clicks that the reason that she has been invited there is because the Phantom has made it so. Um, and she goes there with her son and basically through a convoluted series of um, mishaps and whatnot, they, they, we discover that somewhere in the 10 years where the Phantom had fled to New York and Christine was married to Raoul, they have met up and they have done the deed and the Phantom then realises later on that they've done the deed and that the baby, that, well the baby, the, the young son that she's brought to New York with her is in fact his son. Now this is shown in a, a song called The Beauty Underneath where the Phantom takes Christine and his son around his world, his lair. Um, and for me that poses the first problem with the show that I remember and that is that the set for that particular song is like it looks like somebody's raided an old bad prop cupboard like it's just too busy and I think that the show has a lot of that like it's trying to show itself as this kind of this production anyway is trying to show itself as this big kind of glamorous like this spectacle this because the original Phantom of the Opera is this weird spectacle and that like it is massive but it's also really intensely pared down almost but it feels grand it feels opulent where this is like just trying to be opulent and instead is garish it would be if i could describe it really unkindly or to i would have to say it's like new money like if you somebody who wins the lottery and suddenly goes out and paints everything gold like like what you'd find in trump tower trump tower is completely almost completely painted gold like it's awful love never dies has that feeling to it, it and that everything is just too garish and it's too it's just trying to overcompensate and say, well, I may not have had money before, but I got money now. And it, it doesn't, that doesn't work for me. If I'm being honest, it doesn't work for me. Um, after the beauty underneath, the second problem is also exposed and that some of the lyrics are not ideal. So the kids obviously gone missing because the Phantom's taking them to show them the beauty underneath, which sounds gross. Um, and she, by this point, I think, recognises that she has been conned into going there. And he realises that if she doesn't go, she won't get paid. She doesn't think she won't get paid. So she tells the Phantom that she's going to sing and then go. But she sings 
tomorrow night I'll sing with all my might, sing for you, and then we'll go. Mm. Is it sing for you? Even now, like, tomorrow night I'll sing with all my might is not great. It's really not great. It's really not great. And there's a lyric somewhere in there as well, as well where he says, where beauty and music and artifice reign. Who uses the word artifice in a musical that you expect the general public to go to? I certainly wouldn't. Um, another funny thing about that lyric is that when the show, this is around about a time when kind of viral marketing was, was the thing, and the they captioned a picture, I think, from the show with that lyric, except whoever was running the Facebook account got the lyric wrong, and they said, beauty and music and art are first rate. It's wrong, that's not the lyric. And I, I was one of those sad people that commented underneath being like, that's not right. That's the right lyric. And then suddenly the post disappeared. So make it that what you will. Um, and then that kind of problem of being overly elaborate kind of leaks over into the second half. And the one thing that we're waiting on the entire time is um, the song Love Never Dies because um, it is a rework, which is ballsy anyway. Um, it's a rework of a song from The Beautiful Game. And I think the song was initially called I Have a Love could be wrong i'm gonna keep talking while i actually search that because i need to know because emma from my college sang that song beautifully hey emma if you're listening i don't know if you will be um it's the beautiful game and it's by andrew lloyd webber it's a musical about football and the troubles which if, oh no our kind of love it's called um and there's a lyric in it which says i have a love but the song is our kind of love I mean, also there's a bit in the Coney Island Waltz where it goes like na 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 na, which is a is a a theme from Sunset Boulevard. But then I guess it doesn't really count as plagiarism if you're plagiarizing yourself. I don't know. That's a that's a topic for discussion maybe another day. Um, but yeah, you're waiting for it to get to this Love Never Dies song, which is a beautiful song. We'll get to that in just a minute. I'm going to use that to seamlessly seg into my defense of the show. Um. So, Love Never Dies, you're waiting for this big moment. There's so much build-up, there's so much prelude, there's so much anticipation um, that when you get to this song, it's just Christine in the middle of a stage, in the middle of a revolve, as bits of set move around her. Now, I don't know if the set was broken, or if it's where we were sitting, or if it is just like this, but in this particular production, the set moved around her and blocked her off to the point where you couldn't really focus fully on what she was singing until the end, um, because the set was like moving around her and it just was very, very, very distracting and very disappointing. Um, and I see you couldn't ignore it till the end because the last chorus, if you like, of the song is so grand and so stunning. It's just phenomenal. I would play it now, but copyright. Um, oh my God. In fact, no, do you know what? You get 30 seconds, don't you? So I'm going to just do it. I'm going to play Spotify from my phone. This is how rickety-rackety we are today. If my phone dies, that'd be really funny. But I probably won't. I hope it won't anyway. Love never dies. Let's see. So let me just... Um, love never dies. Love never dies. So I'm going to go...
Love Lives On. I think that went over 30 seconds. Probably not very much. But that is um, the final. That's the, that's the moment that you're waiting for. Is to hear Christine sing this kind of grand, lyrical, beautiful song. Um, and in the soundtrack and in the original production, and then it was Sierra Boggins. But we saw the understudy, who I do remember was remarkably good. Um, so if I could link that point with the music um, to the Phantom's big song, which happens. Um, in this production, we saw it happened about halfway through the first half. Um, and that is Till I Hear You Sing, which is this just ginormous song um, and it was performed by Ramin Karablu whose voice is like theatre butter like it is utterly sensational it's so 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 good um, and it was a, a hair on the back of your neck standing up moment it just was one of those where it's just massive it's a massive massive song um, and so if I could briefly go back to where Love Never Dies kind of sits in the show it then kind of trundles on to the end and the end, again, massive spoiler, it sees Christine shot and killed by a suddenly crazy Meg Giri. And I didn't just make that up, that actually happens. Um, <laughs> so sorry about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really disappointing end. And this is, I think that the ending is the reason why the, um, why the show didn't do so hot and why people did not take it on is because it just for want of a better word, it kills any kind of imagination you could have about a happy ending for that show. Other than the Phantom takes his son. That's, but again, it's like, is it really worth it? Um, Because you've killed off your heroine. And, and we love Christine Dye, you know. She's just this little doe-eyed voice of an angel princess. Like, we love her. So, there's a lot in there. And a lot of it may seem indefensible. But now I'm going to do my absolute best to tie it up. Before that, you're going to hear some jazzy interlude music, so prepare ye. <laughs> so, in summation, it doesn't sound like there is an awful lot in there that is defensible. However, if you were to go home or sit at home if you were home or be on a bus and listen to the soundtrack, I guarantee you, your entire body would be just one big chill. It is some of the most beautiful music to ever come out of a musical, ever. It's just, it's, it's, for want of a better word, it's just staginess done right. And so far as it is giant, it's romantic, it's like equal parts operatic, equal parts theatrical, it's performed beautifully especially when I saw it um, and it just is so so well done um, so Love Never Dies got a lot of crap and I think the reason it got a lot of crap is because people were so tied to the original <clears throat> which makes sense because the original is a beloved piece of theatre and it touches a lot of lives you know the marketing for the original production at one point was London's Greatest Love Story and <clears throat> excuse me it's hard to argue really that it is, in fact, one of the greatest love stories to, to grace the stage. The movie wasn't much caught, but the film was great. Um, and I think Love Never Dies, kind of running along at the back of that, didn't really, didn't land. And it didn't land because people were so tied, I think, to the original that they they, just, they, they couldn't see the sequel. They, they just could not see the sequel. They wouldn't regard it. And you know what? I understand that because... If something really powerful touches you, like like a 
like a book or a film or a or a, a musical or play whatever if if you see something that you take and it, it hits you somewhere where you live it, it's hard to it's hard to see it done a disservice you know like i think for me again talk about wicked i feel like i do that a lot now with the thought of a wicked film the thought of somebody doing that and doing it badly is terrifying because you think that as a show would the message mean so much to me and for somebody to go and take it and do it a disservice which might happen it might not that's scary and i think a lot of the fans with the ph were worried that it would be done badly or it would it would change their perception of it and I guess that in itself is kind of a defence because the issue is not with the show, it's with what the show represents, which is maybe the the power of the imagination being taken away from from people. You know, if if everything had a sequel, then there's just there's no there's no author death, I guess. To to kind of go back to that point. Like you think about something like Home Alone. Home Alone is, I mean, I've only seen the first two, I think. I've seen the fourth one, maybe. But after the first Home Alone, you're like, oh, God, thank God, they're back together. The family's back together. This is what we need as, as casual viewers. Um, And then in the second one, they lose them again. And you're like, now you've just been irresponsible. And it's kind of that, I think, with Love Never Dies, maybe. Um, is, you know, you, you want to think that at some point, Christy may have come back. But now, because Love Never Dies exists, spoiler alert, you know she comes back, they have a baby together, for God's sake. But then she dies. And that's horrible. That is really horrible. Um, so, the, I guess the defence, certainly from a kind of metaphysical... Metaphysical? From an outsider's perspective, from another standpoint, outside of the material, um, I guess it is that. The the show itself is is not the problem. It's It's what people... What the what the, the what the oh, can't speak, what the creation of the show represents more than anything else, and the production obviously wasn't great as I've said. So I kind of <laughs> don't know every single thing single thing I've just said, um. But the music itself is stunning. It is absolutely stunning, um. And it kind of proves my point slightly because a few years after the um it opened and bombed in London well actually sorry I'll go back but when it opened in London it closed a few months later for some revisions which has I don't know any other instances where that's happened where they've gone okay we need to close this we need to fix the problems we need to reopen it and when they reopened it they'd moved a couple of things around they changed some stuff um, and then they um, they moved I think till you to the beginning and I'm sorry I don't know any more changes than that and it still had its problems um, it still wasn't received in the way that I think the producers and creatives would have hoped. Um, they brought a new director and everything. And then, sorry, after that, what I was going to say was they then, um, a whole new production was mounted in, I believe, Melbourne. And that production got, like, rave reviews. So it just shows you that the music, which is, like, the, the beating heart of a musical, obviously, um, is worth something. Um, it just needed the right production behind it. But I think because of all that hype, because of all the layup, it it was impossible to see it as anything more than someone trying to take a beloved piece of work, admittedly the creator of the beloved piece of work, and make it something that it that wasn't close to the original. So I think it comes down to personal ownership being the reason why it wasn't well thought of and just not having the right production. And I guess 
if I could spitball for a minute, if I think about myself maybe in that position, obviously I don't have Android whatever money, but I do have the thought that you're going to throw whatever creatives you think are necessary at the piece to try and make it something that it's not and what you or to, to try and make it something better and I guess what you end up with is this hodgepodge which is what that original production was you if, if you could find a clip of the beauty underneath the beauty not booty jeez that's a different show entirely if you could find a clip on like a video clip of the beauty underneath you would see what I mean it is like people just throwing it has like a, a little bit of everything in it it's like a collection. It's it just is it's emblematic, I think, of the problem with the show and that they tried too hard. Where, sure, the, the Melbourne production, which is actually available on DVD and probably was available on Sky Arts at some point, um, what that did well was it stripped all that away and, it, okay, it was still a lush concept, but it was consistent. And I think that's why it did so well. It wasn't trying too hard. It was just... It was what it was. It, was, it, it exists as a separate piece. You could watch that production on its own but I think in tying it to the original, as they did with that production, and throwing everything they could at it, they did it at disservice. Which is a shame, because like I say, it's the best music Angela Webber has probably written since Sunset Boulevard. I'm a huge fan of Sunset Boulevard. Um, and I've not really loved a lot of what he's done since. Um, so that's my defence of Love Never Dies. Listen to the music alone and watch the Melbourne production of it. And actually, if you live in the UK, that production, I believe, is going on tour. Um, the original of Phantom of the Opera, the, 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 the original production is going on tour. And I think that each theatre that the Phantom of the Opera is playing in, Love Never Dies is behind it by maybe a couple of months. Um, so that will be interesting to, to kind of see that play out. Um, because Love Never Dies has never been back in the UK since. It's almost a decade after it opened and bombed it's now back so that's cool and um, I for one will be there with, with bells on because I enjoyed my experience in the theatre that night my takeaway is Ramin Karamloo singing um, Tell I Hear You Sing and the absolutely dreadful that I can't remember the girl who played Christine singing um, Love Never Dies those are the two main things I take away everything else is kind of just a memory actually funny because I had a dream um, a little while after I saw I don't know why I remember this. I had a dream a little while after I saw Love Never Dies that I was in touch with Andrew Lloyd Webber and he came to my high school. Now, I saw Love Never Dies in 2010. I've been at high school for three years by this point. I had a dream that he came to my high school and he was asking about it. And I said, well, the first act was good. It was it, Sorry, the second act was good, but the first was a bit busy. And that's true. I think the whole thing is a bit busy. And I think it's the busyness that, that really shafted it. But listen to the music, watch the Melbourne production. I'm going to stop rambling now uh, and then I'm going to sign off. Thank you for listening to my defense of Love Dies. If you choose to leave me here, have a nice day. <sighs> Thank God. Thank you for listening so far if you have. Um, I've got some ideas for future podcasts, but genuinely not very many because this was bruising. So I might be a little while until I do my next one. Um, but I feel that because I said I was going to do one this weekend, I had to do one and I had to do it for myself. Um, I said a little bit on Instagram about the about doing these podcasts. Um, I don't want to bore people too much, but I think a lot of it is good for my mental health and I have something creative to do. Um, so even if people aren't listening, I'm happy to do it. And this weekend just was not that. Um, I think I'm going to be happy with the outcome of this one. I ended up using Anchor in the end because 
it just if it's just simple talking you know not having to cut up clips and stuff like that it seems to work better so yeah thank you for listening thus far and thank you very much for the feedback on the first episode if you're not listening to that you can find it on at the moment just on spotify um it's the top five books of 2019 and it features myself and my boyfriend joe talking for a second hour and 12 minutes about books so you can tune on in i'll have to think about some more episode ideas but if you want to submit some you can find me on instagram at gettinglittypod that's g-e-t-t-i-n-l-i-t-t-y pod p-o-d so gettinglittypod on instagram um yeah i don't think i have much more to say just thank you for listening thus far if you have thank god it's not longer than the first one um have a nice day all the very best of wishes and the kindest of regards Mm -hmm.